First Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first topic I want to cover as one of the essentials of our faith is what we believe about the Bible. What we believe about the Scripture. Peter, the Apostle Peter, is encouraging Christians who are dispersed throughout all minor Asia. Uh, Minor Asia would be what we know as Turkey today. Uh, These these Christians have been scattered. They are being persecuted for their faith. And Peter wants to encourage them. And Peter is using his pen. Peter is using words that the Bible says have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, is going to encourage these saints through a letter that's going to be circulated throughout all Asia Minor as they are going through a hard time. And Peter's words are relevant, they're current for this group of people. And we believe, church, as followers of Christ, that what was conveyed to the believers in the first century church is as relevant today as it was then. Because these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about Scripture, there's four things that we need to understand about the Bible. Four things that you need to know about the Bible. And I'm using an acrostic this morning, SCAN. So it'll hopefully help you to remember uh, uh, the importance of the Bible with this uh, this acrostic. S stands for sufficiency. Sufficiency. When it comes to the Word of God, we have all the words of of God that we need to live a godly life. All the words that we need from God, we have. The Bible says that we are not to subtract from the Word of God or to add to the Word of God. Legalists want to add to the Word of God. Liberals want to subtract from the Word of God. And we can't do either. And when we look at Scripture, we need to understand that all 
all that God has given us through His Word is completely sufficient for our lives. Now, the Word of God isn't the only book that we need to read. There's other books that we need to read as well. Uh, The Bible isn't going to teach us how to understand a computer or repair a computer, or repair uh, an automobile, or learn how to be an engineer. There's still other things that we need to uh, acquire, need to study and understand. But when it comes to living a godly life, the Bible has, we have all the words necessary to live that godly life. The Bible may not teach you how to repair a car, but the Bible can teach you how to be, be a godly repairman. And that's really important when you're under an engine and you're trying to loosen a nut, nut and you break your knuckles on the, with that wrench. And if you're in the Word of God, guess what? You're going to have a better response when you break your knuckle than if you aren't in the Word of God. Amen? And that's really important when you've got a teenager under the car with you looking at how you are going to respond. Folks, we have all that's necessary for us to live a godly life. The second thing you need to understand about the Scripture is its clarity. Scripture is clear. Scripture is not hard to understand. If you're hungry for the Word of God, you can understand it. If you're thirsty for the Word of God, the Bible says the Spirit of God will illuminate your mind. It won't give you new revelation But it will give you illumination. It will give you practical application as you're living or you're walking this journey with God. It is clear. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 11 through 14 says this. For this commandment that I command you today is not hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring Bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Let's read this last part together. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Every one of us can understand the Word of God if we approach the Word of God with simple, childlike faith. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives within you. And He helps you to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We're not going to read it this morning. Go home and, or, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Go home and read it. The Spirit of God is there to guide you. The third thing about Scripture is its authority. 
The Bible says that God's word is God-breathed. If you have your Bibles, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 or verses 16 and 17. Now, I've got a lot of a lot of territory to cover this morning, so uh, bear with me. And some of these things you just need to listen to, and uh, you can go home and read them yourselves later on. But Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction." and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word that we have in our lap, that we have in our hands this morning, the Bible says is God-breathed. Now, when, when Paul was conveying this to Timothy, he was referring to the Old Testament. But folks, I want to say this morning that just as the Old Testament is God-breathed, so we can know that the New Testament is God-breathed. And how can I say that? Well, four things this morning um, about the New Testament. What were Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, verse 10? Jesus says, I don't speak my own words. I only speak the words that the Father has given me. In John chapter 16, verse 13 Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. But he was going to send the the Holy Spirit in his place. And uh, Jesus says this to the disciples in verse 13. But now I am coming to you. I'm sorry. Verse 13 of chapter 16. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Those were words of Jesus really pertaining to his disciples, who were going to be the apostles, the foundation of the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit was going to bring back to their memory many things that Jesus had talked about. They didn't understand this Christ completely before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, it was a whole new ball game. And Jesus wasn't going to be there for them, but the Holy Spirit was. And Jesus says the the Holy Spirit will, will illuminate your mind and your heart and give you revelation about who I am. And so the apostles were listening to the Holy Spirit, and they were careful to record those words. Uh, that he was conveying to them, that the Spirit of God had reminded him, them of what Jesus had said. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, let me just read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, this is what the apostles claim about their own words. Verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths as to those who are spiritual. 
the apostles knew that their words were unique. They were of God. And as you go on and read the book of Acts, Jesus authenticated their words, their teachings, by supernatural miracles that were unique to this period of time because what Jesus was affirming, what the Spirit of God was affirming, were that these men were men of authority. These These men had words that were coming from God and they needed to pay attention to them. The apostles knew that their words were unique. And in fact, as they were writing their letters and as they were circulating them, they, they considered their words to be holy scripture. You know, it wasn't, and it, we, they didn't have to wait, the New Testament church didn't have to wait till the third century to decide what the canon of scriptures was going to be. The church knew in the very first century what was authoritative. Look at Second Peter chapter three, verse sixteen. Second Peter three sixteen, and uh, let me just read these words. I'm going to start with verse fifteen. You just listen. Jesus, uh, Peter says, "Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him." as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to, be, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Folks, we have the inspired Word of God. These words did not come from man's own initiative. The Spirit led them. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So rest assured, both Old and New Testament, we have in our hands today the Word of God, the very words of God that have been translated into English. They are completely sufficient. They are clear. If you'll just approach the Word of God like with childlike faith, they are authoritative and they are Number four, necessary. Necessary. Without the word of God, church, this life can be really confusing. We need the word of God to create in us a biblical worldview that will 
uh, help guide us through the wave of uh, secularism that has systematically swept over this nation of ours. We live in a culture today that has rejected the word of God. Man today has, set, has decided for himself that it's okay to erase the moral boundaries and to do our own thing. And folks, government's definition of what's right and what's wrong is not, is, is not what's going to bless this country. Now, at one time it did when they chose to believe the word of God, the laws of God. But that's not the way it is today. And God doesn't promise, God will not bless today. Rather, he's going to judge. Because man has decided that life doesn't begin inside the womb. Life begins outside the womb. We live in a culture today that is removing God from everything in our society. We can't pray in school. We can't teach students the Ten Commandments, that God has a top ten list. Uh, Rather, it's necessary for us to pass out contraception. We believe that man has, has evolved from monkeys. And so we kind of expect that kind of behavior. And as a result, look at the consequences that we have in our schools today. Parents are shopping for bulletproof backpacks for their children. Our world is a mess. It reminds me of my daughter Allison when she was three years old. When she was three years old, she didn't like her mother to get her dress. She would say to her mom, I can do it all by myself. And guess what mom did? She let Allison get dressed all by herself. And Allison would go out in public looking like she had gotten dressed all by herself. We live in a country today that says, I can do it all by myself. And God has let us, and look, look at the mess that we have created for ourselves. The word of God is necessary to keep us from making things a mess. And as a church, we believe that the scripture is the authoritative, inspired word of God. We don't teach any man-made philosophy around here. We don't teach from Reader's Digest magazine. We teach from the word of God. Thus says the word of God. It will guide our church. It will guide our homes. It will guide your personal life. How important is the word of God in your life? Are you getting alone with God? 
daily. These saints, these exiled saints, their lives were in trouble. They were living in fear. And Peter chose to sit down through the inspired by the, and inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words to encourage these saints in a time when they needed it most. Which brings us to the second doctrine that we believe in. Salvation. What does the Bible say about their about our salvation. Life was falling apart at the seams. And they were wondering what was going on. And Peter wants to encourage them. And Peter in, in, it reminds them in verse 1, going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. What does the Bible say about our salvation? How are we saved? Peter says we're elect. What that means is that God chose us. God knew us by the foreordained knowledge of God. God knew our name. And while we were yet sinners, God chose to call us his own. Peter is not trying to hide this very important doctrine of salvation. Peter says, you elect saints. Right from the very beginning, off the tip of his tongue, he says, you elect saints. Christians, here in the first century church, things might be really tough right now and beyond your control, But Peter is reminding them that they serve a sovereign God that is fully in control. And God chooses those whom he saves. How? Through faith. John 3.16 says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Our salvation comes through faith, but that faith is a gift of God by His grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Folks, the Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that God does all the saving. And it doesn't just start in the New Testament. It starts from the very beginning. God does it all. This, this is the gospel. 
We can't earn our salvation. We can't work our way into favor with him. We come into relationship to him purely by grace alone. This is salvation. Now, you might be here this morning. You might be thinking to yourself, saying to yourself, well, how do I know I'm elect? How do I know God has saved me? And I just say to you, listen, if you have a desire to want to know him, who want his forgiveness, who want to understand his love and his power and his mercy in your life, guess what? You're elect. God's given you his grace to pursue him. God has taken the veil. He's removed the veil from your eyes. That's how you know you're elect. But scripture is very clear on this. You can go back and look at Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. I talked about this uh, two weeks ago. In fact, let me just read it. Luke, Luke chapter 10. Jesus' words. Listen to his words, friend. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to, to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's up to God. Now, I don't know who the elect are. The Bible just says I'm just try to, I have to just try to nominate as many people as I can nominate, and God does the electing. But your decision to follow Christ was not your own. It was by the grace of God. He chose you. You didn't choose him. And if he chose you, my friend, he's not going to let you go. You're his forever. Which brings us to the third important doctrine in our church. The security of the believer. Security. I want to go back to First Peter chapter one and verses and read verses three through five again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last in the last time when when it comes to our salvation does god just stand back and hope that we'll make it to heaven absolutely not he doesn't stand back uh indifferent uninvolved no peter is saying that he is actively and sympathetically involved in our walk with him the bible says those who are born again are guarded verse 5 they're guarded some translations say shielded or protected by the power of god through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time God is guarding our salvation. How? By faith, by our faith. Nobody understood this more than Peter when he was penning these words. Um, Go to um, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This was before Jesus was going to be betrayed. And Jesus uh, knew that Peter was going to be, his faith was going to be sifted like wheat. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This is what Jesus tells Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Most of us know what happened in Peter's life, don't we? Peter said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, uh, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Jesus knew this. And Jesus knew that his faith was going to be sifted like wheat. But what did Jesus say? I am praying for your faith, Peter. And when you return, when you come back to me, strengthen your brothers. God guards our salvation. He protects it. He has secured it. He keeps it. It is not going to fade away. But what hinges on that salvation is our faith. But even our faith is being kept by the power of God. Jesus is praying for our faith. And Peter returned and Peter strengthened the brethren. God wants his people. 
going back to first Peter, God wants his people to be profoundly secure in their relationship with God. And God is keeping it. The God who saves is the God who is guarding. The Bible says God has gone before us. God has gone behind us. God is in us. And he is giving us the strength and the power and the grace to persevere. And what's our responsibility? To believe. And what encourages our faith? The word of God. It's the word of God that feeds our faith. And my question to you this morning, Christian, is how much are you in the word of God? If your only time in the word of God is in services on the weekends like this, guess what the size of your faith is? About this big. God wants you to be carrying a shield of faith. And when we're in the word of God, when we understand the word of God, we're dependent on the word of God. We need it. Guess what? Our, our faith grows larger and we can withstand the darts of the enemy. We need faith. The word feeds our faith. ESPN is not going to feed your faith. Fox News is not going to feed your faith. It only comes from the word of God. His word is sufficient. His word is necessary. It's what we need. And God wants us to know that our faith is secure in him. So for all of you journey lovers out there, don't stop believing. Keep believing because he is there for every one of us. So this is what we believe about scripture. This is what we believe about salvation, about security. And then finally, what do we believe about eternity? We believe that there's an eternity. The Bible teaches that there is an eternity. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Peter talks about heaven. And there's an inheritance that's not going to fade away. You know, the second law of thermodynamics, thermodynamics does not apply to heaven. It is, it was, it, it is never, ever going to fade away. But just as the Bible talks about a heaven, the Bible also talks about a hell. And here at Emmanuel, we believe both. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, consider the kindness and severity of God. We like to, we like to dwell on his kindness. You know, his kindness leads us to repentance. But there's a severity about God that we need to understand as well. That he's holy and that he's going to punish sin. And love says that we need to not only just talk about the kindness of God, but we need to talk about the severity of God. Think about your children. You know, when you're teaching your children about the stovetop, 
the stovetop can do good things for the family, but then there are some very dangerous things about the the stovetop as well. The stovetop can can cook noodles, can can cook macaroni and cheese. Uh, There's some good things that the stovetop can do, but it can also be dangerous. You know, it can be hot, and you have to be careful. And as loving parents, we warn them about the dangers, don't we? We want to the, uh, we we don't want them to hurt themselves, and so we tell them the severity side, and that's the way it is as Christians too. Not only do we talk about the kindness of God, but we have to talk about His severity. That there is a place of eternal torment for those who reject Him. And the Bible is very clear about this um, eternity separated from God, that it is conscious torment. Some people want to say today that, um, you know, <clears throat> it's not conscious eternal tor- torment. No, hell is annihilation. Once you're cast into hell, you're burned up and no longer exist and this is not what the scripture says. Now, I didn't put it in, in your outline. I failed to. But uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 48. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. But write down Revelation 14, 11. This is probably the most clear um, uh, passage on, on hell and uh, it being eternal torment. Revelation 14, 11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's what we believe about hell. This is what the Bible says. Now, your modern-day theologians, uh, people like Clark Pinnock, this is what he has decided about hell. I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not first of all on scriptural grounds. It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. And we allow, people, liberals allow their subjective minds to interpret what the Word of God says to be true. Hell is not annihilation. Hell is a place of eternal and conscious torment separated by God from God. And you might be here and you might be thinking today, well, I don't believe in that kind of God. God couldn't, couldn't possibly be a God of love and send people to that kind of place for all eternity. 
And I just say to you this morning that because God is a God of love, there has to be a place like that for all eternity. If there wasn't a hell, God would be indifferent to the pain and suffering innocent people go through in this world. He wouldn't, he wouldn't care about the person or the families who experienced a murder or a rape. But God does care. And God says there is going to be a place of utter torment for all eternity for those who reject me. Now, does God send them to hell? I've gotten in trouble for this. No, I don't believe God sends people to hell. He's allowed them to make the decision to reject him. God has gone to the nth degree. He's gone to the extreme to keep people from going there by his son dying on the cross. People have to literally walk over the body of Jesus to go to hell. God has given them the desires of their hearts. But that's not God's desire. His desire is for all to come to know him. But this is what we believe about eternity. Peter writes to elect exiles who are suffering for their faith. Peter knows that his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he writes them to say, listen, we serve a sovereign God who holds you in the palm of his hand. He knows your name. The things that are happening in your life hasn't caught him by surprise. Pay attention to my word. Know that your salvation is secure. Don't stop believing. I am your God and Jesus is praying for your faith. Keep believing. And one day, my friend, there is going to be a reward for all eternity for those who live for him. God brought you to the service this morning to remind you that he's there for you. Spend time with him this week. Don't wait for next Sunday for a word of encouragement. God wants to encourage you tonight before you go to bed, in the morning when you go up, get up, maybe in the afternoon at lunch, maybe do it three times a day if if necessary. But keep your mind fixed on him because his is fixed on you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. It's exactly what we need. And God, forgive us 
for taking it more seriously. I thank you, Father, for Peter's words and how he encouraged these these saints that were suffering for their faith, that were spread all over Asia Minor. Just as these words encourage them, or they can encourage us today. Saints, I don't know why you're here this morning. But would you believe God? Would you trust His promises? If you're here without Christ and you're questioning, you know, how did I become a Christian? Just start pursuing Jesus. If you have a desire to seek Him, the Bible says He will be found. Know Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. God wants to call you His own. Father, in this time of worship, we say thank you. Thank you that you're here. That you are the God who saves. You are the God who keeps. Encourage each one's faith, I pray. Would you stand with me, please?